Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Let's hear God's word together. We are continuing, and I've been with you, looking at the seven letters to the seven churches. And this morning we're reading of the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Not Philadelphia, obviously, in the United States, um, but the city of brotherly love that was in Asia Minor in Turkey. And so we're reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and we're reading from verse 7 to verse 13. This is the sixth of the seven letters. And let's hear the words of that exalted and glorified Jesus Christ, King and Head of His Church. As He writes to the angel, through John, that is to the Apostle John, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of Him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What He opens, no one can shut, and what He shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come in the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write in them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write in them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. May God bless to us this reading of his own holy word, and to his name be the praise and the glory. Let's sing together a hymn, which is a prayer, asking for God to speak into our hearts and to prepare our hearts as we read it and reflect upon it together. Speak O Lord, as we come to you, an invitation for God to speak into our lives so that we might receive the food of your holy word. And Jan will lead us again. I know we all like to hear little stories of what God's doing. And I know I mentioned last Sunday that um, when I was at the Keswick Convention with Elizabeth the, the week before, we had got into conversation. Yes, that's a nice idea. We breath of air to come in. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Janice. That's lovely. That's lovely. Oh, doesn't want it to stay open, but I'll just keep walking up and down, that'll move on. <laughs> um, that the week before, when we had been um, at the Keswick Convention on the Friday afternoon, when Elizabeth had been at the exhibition um, down in the, the, what they call the base camp, I had been sitting, there's somebody trying to get in, yes? There we are. In you come, nice to see you. Welcome. Um, that um, back to the, where am I now? Yes, on the Friday afternoon at the exhibition, I, I was sitting down beside the, the river that runs through Keswick, the River Crokey, I think, Crokey, Crokey, something like that. Anyway, the river. And I was sitting down on a mat, and, and I was very much aware of somebody coming up beside me and standing there. And I looked round. It was this um, young fellow, relatively young fellow, guy in his twenties, of ages probably 
Gregor or whatever. And um, he, he, he was obviously of a foreign a European extract, because when he spoke English, you could, you could discern that. And he said, oh, I've just come to work in this area, and I'm just trying to find out things. I think that's what he said. And right away, I did recognize that he was the waiter, one of the waiters from the hotel we were staying. I was glad about that, because let's be honest, a middle-aged man sitting in a park and a strange young lad coming up, well, you know, it's not really, you kind of think, what's going on here, you see? So, um, but I recognized him as a waiter from the hotel. So we got talking. He had moved in. He'd got a job working in the Keswick Hotel where we were staying. He, wasn't, he was new to the area, wanted to find out things. And then he began to speak a wee bit about um, how, well, I asked him what he was going to do, because presumably he wasn't just going to be a waiter and he said he was wanting them to do psychology because, well, people have problems in their life and issues in their life, and he, and he wanted to help them. And when he said that, up to then, I was just going to blather away. But when he said that, I thought, well, really? So, so I said, well, I'm actually here for the Keswick Convention. Although he worked in the tent, I didn't know anything about the Keswick Convention, so we ended up going to visit the tent where the main meetings are held. And, and we walked into that part of the, the town. We, we were fortunate there was somebody in the office who opened up the, well, not the tent, but opened the entrance in, because obviously in the afternoon it's not being used. And he certainly was quite taken aback. Here's a tent that seats 2,800 people, and it's full um, for the meetings. Plus, there's many other hundreds that meet down at the base camp, families and, and younger people who meet down, down there in the other part of the town. There's obviously the platform, the band, and all the rest of it, all the equipment there. And he was quite taken up by that. And I said, well, would you like to come to one of the meetings? And I said, when are you off? Are you off work? And he said, well, I'm off Monday and Tuesday next week. I said, oh, well, I just happen to be coming back down on Tuesday with one of my friends, with my good friend Ian Nielsen, who's been here before. I've known since I was at school. And with his dad, who used to go regularly to the Keswick Convention with his wife. His wife's now in a nursing home. And, well, the man wanted to go, but felt a wee bit on his own. So I said to Ian, well, let's take your dad. He's 88. But, oh, what a fiery, fervent servant the Lord is. Anyway, so Tuesday we turn up, me, my pal, and this gentleman. And young Damien comes and spends the day with us. He comes and meets us after the main meeting. I didn't invite him to 55 minutes and a few verses in Romans 8. I thought that might just be a wee bit too much for him. Um, so we met for lunch. We went to Buttermere. We spent the day with him. And we were very careful in our conversation not to kind of, you know, get you in a corner and give you the four spiritual laws. That form of evangelism is disastrous and has done more damage to the church and to the cause of the church in many ways than, well, many other things. And so we didn't do that, but we did speak. So, for instance, he spoke about the mountains and how impressed he was with the scenery and all the rest of it, because we, well, we did say, well, we believe God created the heavens and the earth and whatever else, yeah. So, we said that. He came, had dinner with us, got a freebie for that, and then he came to the evening meeting. Now, this is the bit, really, we sat down, and like church, often folk just sit there and don't say anything. But this guy turned, he said, oh, hello, and he turned to the young man, and he said, are you a pastor? And the guy just kind of looked. I mean, his English is very good, but he still is Polish. Um, and he said, no. And he kind of, the man, the man spoke kind of stuff. He said, well, he said, God's brought you here tonight. And he's got a future for you. And what he wants you to do is to listen and to watch and to see. Because above everything else, he wants to have a relationship with you. And he just kind of patted that. And then he looked at me and I said, well, I'm the pastor. <laughs> but no him, no him. <laughs> And he just smiled at me in a way that, no, that, you know. Now, that happened. I've known that before when Martin, all those years ago in 2008, when John and I were there and Martin was there, and this lady, very respectable Church of England lady, turned around and said, I don't normally do these things, but 
and gave a word to Martin that evening. This man. So I said to the young lad, what did you think of that? <laughs> now, if it had been me and I had just been polite, I'd have been at that door like a, what's this? But he didn't. And he listened. He tried to sing. And on the way back, my friend walked back with him. At the very end, we chatted away. And I said, well, what did you think of that? And he said, oh, he says, he said, I don't know anything about church. He said, you're a Catholic, just a, a boy who went to the, you know, to the church, to the chapel. He said, but oh, I didn't believe in God. And he just kind of stood. And I said, well, I said, we do. And I said, you know, this is not a coincidence that you should come and speak to somebody, Christian, and that tonight that might. He said, oh, I know, what do you make of that? He said, can I come with you tomorrow? And I said, so um, he was working, so he came to the exhibition the next afternoon. And to sit with a young man whose English is very good, but not his first language, and to see him read for the first time ever in his life from an English Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have life everlasting. And then to see this saint of God at 88 say to him so graciously and so lovingly, no, Damien, you could put your name in there. For God so loved Damien. Well, I'm afraid that's, well, not afraid, I'm delighted that that's one of the things over these past months I'll never, ever forget. And lo and behold, now, we, we don't, you know, say, oh, I want to be a Christian right away because he has no understanding of who God is. But as God spoke to him through his word and as he went away, as he took a wee book that was lying in the OMF stall, the people overseas missionary fellowship where Martin works, the, the people who are there this week, again, the lady very, just very sensitively, right as way she, she could see, she went around the exhibition and she smiled at me and then said, oh, are you interested? And there was a little book written by a guy called Levi. I met him last year, a friend of Martin's from OMF, a very fine young man who um, was a Frisbee player. Um, but, now, but, you know, like for the Olympics, I think next year, the Frisbee, there's going to be a competition. And he's now, a, he works for the Japanese Frisbee company, or Frisbee team, training them up. And he's a Christian. And Japan's a very hard ground. Now, Dave and Jeanette Miller served there faithfully for many years, and there wasn't a great amount of response. Well, this young lad, well, he's written just a wee book called Grace. Same story as this Polish guy, just how God broke into his life and how he's God's using his gifts and talents. And then, lo and behold, the last wee bit of the story was he sent me a text yesterday with a message saying that the Polish, remember the guy we met at the, 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 the at Convention? It turns out that he'd been a Polish, the English guy, he'd been at a Polish-speaking church just the week before. And he'd picked up a Polish commentary or, or booklet about the Bible and he'd left it lying at the reception at the Keswick Hotel for young Damien. And as we text this morning, by the way, I don't think you, I haven't told you yet, I think I'm going back down to Keswick for one afternoon. Because <laughs> you've got all these questions. And then as we text today, this morning, he said, I think God's wanting to get to know me. I pull, oh, there's more stories, but I could get you all day, but time for tea, but I'm going to Brigetti, never is it. And this is the God who has ransomed a people for himself. And we're going to explore that in the autumn because we're going to look at the five points of Calvinism and, and, and our Sunday mornings. And a God who purchased a people for himself when Jesus Christ died on that cross, that blood is effective 
for his ransomed people, a God who seeks and saves his own and will arrange things in a way that we could never, ever plan or purpose ourselves. And this is a God who's writing to the church of Philadelphia and who says these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. This now, if you're like me and like Elizabeth, we are always losing our keys. Where are the keys? Is that a popular refrain in anybody else's house? Yes. Um, some of you remember, I'm still looking for a key for a Rover 45 that I lost in this church on the night. Remember the renovations took place all those years ago? The Rover 45 is long in the car grave, but if you ever find a set of keys with a Rover keys, they're mine. Uh, and that was, what, 12 years ago and more. And um, we're always looking for our keys, because without keys, well, you're kind of stuck. You kind of get into your car. It doesn't matter how fancy your buttons are and all the rest. At the end of the day, you don't have that fob, the key, it won't go just as well. It can't get into your house, or you can't get out of your house. You're stuck. And keys also are a sign of ownership. It's my car, or my house, or my safe, or whatever. And the keys are a sign that not only do you have the ability to access it, but you actually have possession of it. You have the ability to own it. And it's also a sign of it is why I have the key, so I'll let you in. It's a way of which case you can invite people and draw people and bring people into what is your domain. So when Jesus says that he holds the key of David, and already he's referred way back in chapter 1, in verse 17, he says, I hold the keys of death and Hades, He's giving to himself, in a sense, that claim of possession, of authority, of being able to grant access of the one who can invite us in. It's actually using imagery drawn from the book of the prophet Isaiah, where there the prophet speaks of one who holds the key, the key literally into the temple. And he's going to use that key to open the doors of the temple and let the people in. And interesting enough in Isaiah, it's not just the people of Israel. It's not just Jewish people who he's going to bring into the temple. He's going to bring in the Gentiles, i.e. us, the wider world, into the temple of God. And it's that God who, through the prophet, said that the doors of the temple would be opened, the key would be turned in the lock, and the people would be drawn in. It's that God who in Jesus Christ says, and I hold the keys of David. Now, as we know, under David, Jerusalem, Israel, became that nation that it had been purposed to be. Jerusalem became that city set upon a hill. Under David, the plans were made, not the actual building, but the plans were made for that temple that his son Solomon built, one of the, the great wonders of the ancient world, the symbol of God's relationship with his people, a temple and indeed a city that was to be clad in white stone so that when the sun hit it, it would illuminate all the countryside round about. And so that in that hilly, rocky country, it would shine out as a beacon of light. Let your light shine before the Gentiles, God said to his people in Isaiah. 
And David, of course, established that royal line when we sing at Christmas, O little town of Bethlehem, the city of David. And Jesus Christ was born in the house and line of David, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He holds the key. And you know, my friends, in this day, these days when there's all sorts of discussion, and I'll, well, in a few weeks' time, even, even Elizabeth said she's interested to hear what I've got to say about my, my expeditions over these last three months. So if she's interested, I hope the rest of you are. Uh, and because because as, as, as I've listened and talked and reflected and seen some very encouraging things and also heard some very serious and concerning things, nonetheless, it's important for us in this wee fellowship here in Uddingston to remind ourselves that who is the one who saves? Who is the one who can open up the door of heaven? Who is the one who can bring people to himself? Who is the one who has all power and authority? Jesus Christ, not us, not the institution of the church, no movement, no scheme, no plan of man or of woman, but Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. He is the one who has the authority. He is the one who has bought a people for himself. And he is the one who is in the business of bringing that number without number to himself. And when they gather, the book of Revelation goes on to tell us, when they gather, they don't worship the church. They don't worship any prophet. They don't worship any great leader of the church, however worthy they may be. But they worship Jesus Christ. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain for us. He is the one who holds the keys, who is the Lord of the church, the head of his body, as Paul tells us in Colossians, the firstborn from among the dead, that he might have preeminence amongst everybody and everything. But he is the one who, by the work and power and presence of the Holy Spirit, draws people to himself and says, come unto me. And look what he says. I hold the key of David, and what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And he's talking here, picking up on an analogy I've already mentioned from Isaiah, where the doors of the temple are to be opened. And this morning we're sitting here, and the front doors have opened, and it means people can come in and join us, and people can see out. Well, at least I can anyway. I can see out and see the world going. The, the idea of a door is a door is important. It's a place of movement. It's a place of journeying. It's a place of entering and of going. It's a place of belonging. It's a welcome. It's a sign. It's not a, a shut door as often. If you often say that, you get a shut door, well, that's it. You'll not be going back. An open door is a welcome, an invitation to draw near, to discover, to explore, to, to experience. Just what the guy said to Damon and, and choose the night. You're here so that you can see and hear and listen and encounter something of who God is. Well, Jesus says to this church, I have set before you an open door which no one can shut. And notice the context. I know your deeds see a place before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. 
since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to happen and going to come in the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Jesus is giving this little church in this relatively small city, a city which if you read the notes, you'll notice from the sheet, you'll notice a city that had been devastated by an earthquake many years before, but nonetheless was still bearing the scars of that earthquake. A city that was not one of the great, wasn't the Ephesus of the ancient world, a city of brotherly love, and yet we obviously sense from here that there was relationships and there was issues and there was persecution and there were problems. It wasn't perfect like the cities and communities of our world today. It might have a name, but it didn't always live up to that that name, to that little fellowship of people who probably weren't the B's and E's and in the kind of places of influence, but just the ordinary punters that nobody really bothered very much about, to that little group of people, he says, I have set before you an open door, an opportunity. It might look as if the doors are shut, the opportunities for the church to grow. It might look that there are people who say that this synagogue of Satan, these Jewish people, that was obviously a big issue in the early church, people who held to a form of religion but denied its power, who stood against the living gospel of the living God and did all sorts of things to try and prevent that. And the book of Acts and the New Testament is full of the challenges of that. But he's saying to a little church, don't you worry, I'm in charge, I'm the boss, I've got the keys, and when I open a door, no one can shut it. Because all authority and power has been given unto me. And you know, my friends, as we gather, first of all, it's encouraging to know that, yes, the church is struggling in Britain, but it's certainly not dead. I've said this many times before, I'll say it again, you know. You don't gather with 2,800 people for communion as we did one of the evenings, you know, and many other hundreds at youth events and other things going on. They're building a youth site in Keswick for the Keswick Convention, a site they'll be able to take up to 15,000 people spread over the three weeks. The church is not dead. And there's many other gatherings like that up and down our land of different shapes and styles. The church is not dead. It's the world that would have us believe it. You know, the, the synagogue of Satan would come along and say, oh, what's the point? Younger people aren't interested. The old folk are dying off. You're just struggling to keep something going that, well, it's had its day. And then those who come along and say, well, this idea of believing in God, I mean, let's be honest, science has disproved it. And, you know, and if you look at human achievements and look at this and look at that, and how can you possibly believe in a divine power, you know, when you see the state of the world? And all sorts of things are said. Seeds not of the truth of the one who is holy and faithful. Notice that's how he's called himself, holy and true. But little seeds of doubt that start being planted and you think, well, well, we try our best, but. And Jesus says, no. I have a purpose for you. I have a door that I want you to enter through. And I have a door that's open for other people in a sense to come in. Not speaking here of geographical material terms, but of that engagement, that opportunity, doors of opportunity that Jesus Christ opens that no one can shut. What it also doesn't mean, mind you, sometimes is we also have to discern when we're pushing a door that's not really of God. And the history of the church is often littered with sincere attempts of people to do you things, to try out you things, and they last for a season. They don't last. Why they don't last? Because it wasn't the plan and purpose of Jesus. They fritter away and there's no fruit, no lasting fruit. But where their door is open, a door that leads into the vineyard, 
keep changing our metaphors here, into the field where the seed is sown and where there is a harvest to be brought in, Jesus says, don't worry. I've got a door open for you. Even though you're small, and this is a word to a fellowship like our own, even though you don't have a lot of strength, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. There is an activity that's quite popular now, I believe, um, and, and quite popular for, well, all kind of maybe Hindus, certainly for stag events. People go, guys go, and they get locked inside a room. There's one in Glasgow, the center of Glasgow, and you get locked inside this room inside of a building. And, and there's clues given as to how you might get out. But one of the reasons, one of the reasons why it's fun is, of course, that you've got to work out what these clues are. And one of the tests is that actually as a group of people, men or women, or so it's mixed groups, I don't think, it, I, I can see it not work for mixed groups. I can see the women in one corner and the men in the other corner falling out each other and not getting very far and sitting there for the rest of the 12 hours till the man comes and opens the doors and lets you out. Uh, Ken's shocked at that. Well, I'm sorry, but I think that's often the case, you know. <laughs> I think that's often the case. So it tends to be women or men, and they get together. I wonder who's best at working out. <laughs> Answer that question. But the point is you're to work together. You have to look at the clues. You have to think through and then you have to go for it. And it brings out those who are leaders of the group. Obviously, there will be some people a wee bit more able. But also, to, to do that kind of thing. But also, it means sometimes the one who sits most quietly is the one who's actually thinking. You know, the one that talks all the time. You know, The one that sits quiet is the one who's thinking actually says, well, what about this? Oh, right, right. And it means you've got to have the willingness, the graciousness, the humility to say, actually, that makes sense. We've been banging at that wall for the last you know, half an hour, not getting anywhere. But actually, she says, just go into that corner and you'll find there's a door there you can get out. Well, the church is to listen. It's to listen to, notice what Jesus goes on to say. Verse 10, you have kept my commands. You have kept my word. We're to listen to what God says. And then together as a fellowship, as the Spirit of God gives us wisdom and insight, we are to learn together what is, those open, what is that open door. What is God's purpose? What future does the Lord have for us as a fellowship? Now, we did that in the past year as a congregation. And God's calling us to continue to do that today so that we can discern, small as we are, lacking in strength, the door of opportunity that the Lord of the church is open to us. And look at as we draw to a close. Look what he says. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write in them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming out of, out of heaven from my God. And I will also write in them my you name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. A number of years ago, as you know, I did a, a wee tour with the Bible Society, and it really was primarily in Greece, and we visited some of the great sites in Greece, Thessalonica, Athens, the footsteps of St. Paul, it was called. But we did a little kind of Kalmak mini-cruise across the Aegean Sea to Turkey, to Kushidaki, the port, and from there we went to Ephesus. When we left the main port, Kushidaki, we went up into the hills. Ephesus is kind of over the hills. At one time, the sea was, went round, in a sense. It was really more a promontory, and the sea went 
went round in Ephesus was actually a seaport at one time. Not now, it's, it's long dried up. But as we went up onto the hills, we went to visit, for, before we went to Ephesus, a little Baptist church. And this is way back 2004. Persecution of the church in Turkey now is far more common than even that it was then. Now, there's a small Christian community in Turkey. It's supposed to be a secular state, but over these past years with the rise of a government who certainly plays the Islamic card for its own ends, persecution of the church has increased. This was a little Baptist church, very small Baptist church. And we went and we heard about what God was doing through this Turkish Bible Society. Um, heard how people had been, you know, the man who was speaking to us worked for the Turkish Bible Society. His children were very educated, very able young children. They were never going to get a chance to go to university because they were marked out as believers. Not true Turkish, not true Turks. And so even then, there was a kind of closed doors to younger people who were Christians. We heard about the work, we came outside. And a field across from this wee Baptist church, wee Baptist chapel really, there was a kind of pile of stones. Now, when you travel in that part of the world, you're well aware, there's a lot of building sites that start and never get finished. So some of us thought, is that? He said, oh no, the man said, no, no. See these big stone pillars lying there? That's why. He said, that's the pillars from the temple to the goddess Diana. The great, one of the great signs of the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that marked out Ephesus, actually, in more ways than one. It had stood on this hill and had been brought down by an earthquake. And now all that's left was some of the, the massive stone pillars that held up this big temple dedicated to basically sex and sexual immorality, lying in ruins. And then we're going down to Ephesus and going around the sites and seeing the place and all the rest of it. And then going to the Colosseum where we sat and where Paul actually, the very same Colosseum that Paul had been taken to when there was of the massive crowd, there was a riot in Ephesus and they wanted to lynch him and he was basically chased to the to this Colosseum so that um, the crowd could gather there. And there he, he spoke and there he actually was vindicated by the Roman rulers and allowed to, to go. But as we sat there, Surrounded by all these ruins, very impressive ruins, mindful of the, the pillars lying in the fields, upside up on the hillside, outside that little Baptist chapel. I thought of these words, Saviour, if of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride our pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. You know, my friends, the pillars of Western society are falling down round about us. I firmly believe that. Many of the things that we held dear are going. Some of them actually weren't very good. Liberal democracy, I think, probably is on its way out eventually in our society. In the West, generally, we thought it was a wonderful thing. Well, time will tell. Many of the things that we believed were so important. Another we see as we're going to do in the autumn is looking at four things that hinder the church growing. And one of them is sentimentality. Keep looking back. Oh, it was wonderful in those days. Those days are gone. And it wasn't all that wonderful. And there's a you do day and a you door. But you know what stands the test of time? Not the pillars of the goddess of Diana. Not the pillars of our so-called Western society, advanced as it may be. What stands the test of time is the church of God and the people 
of God. I will make a pillar. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. He's in the business of taking men and women, of taking fellowships, taking the church, and it stands the test of time. I was speaking to somebody just the other week who's in a, one of the your churches that's popped up over Glasgow. That's another story for another week. And he was saying, I said, well, how long has this church been going for? Oh, he said, about 12 months. He said, how long has your church been going for? 155 years, I said. <laughs> God is in the business of the long term. Not here today, God tomorrow. He's in the business of building a church. And if we listen to his word, if we believe that he is the one who's holy and true, if we're obedient to what he says as we discern what that open door is, he will make you and me a pillar of his church. But as the things of this world fade away, it will stand and will eternally bring glory to God. Do you want to be part of such a building? Do you? Are you so caught up with the things of here and now that really that's, that's your motivation for getting up and going in the morning? Well, I would have to say, I think most of us, that's not the case. I hope not anyway. Because that goes. That turns to dust. Earthquakes happen either physically or other ways in life. Things just fall down round about us. What are we going to be left with at the end? Dust to dust? Ashes to Ashes? Are the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who said that if you believe and are obedient, you'll be a pillar in the greatest temple that has ever been built in the church of God, in the bride of Christ. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that building project. Glorious things of the are spoken. Zion, city of our God, he whose word cannot be broken, formed thee for his own abode. 173, and we'll stand to sing, and as we do so, our young people will come back through and join us. Well, let's pray together. God, our Father, we have heard your word to us this morning, a word of encouragement, but also a word of challenge. We have brought our offerings to you, material tokens of our lives, tangible sign of our desire in a sense to buy into your building project. And Lord, we thank you that's not primarily to do with this building, however thankful we may be for it or any material scheme, but in the building of the kingdom of God. That great building project. How rich, how varied are the, the metaphors that describe your plan and purpose for a people, for yourself. And as we've offered you, these are gifts, so we offer you our lives. We're saying, Lord Jesus, we want to buy into that project. And we thank you that you're the God who has authority. Lord Jesus, you said all authority and power has been given to me. Go ye therefore. And Lord, you're the one who sets an open door for us to go. And so we do pray that 
as leaders of our church, as elders, as office bearers, as, as, as members of your church, as we seek to discern your leading for our future, we do ask that you would give us the mind of Christ, that we would have ears to hear, that we would have hearts and minds open and responsive to your spirit as we hear your word brought to us. You would help us to hear that word and to see what that means, to work out what that means for this day and for this generation so that this place may continue to be a, not, maybe not a, a city set up on a hill like Zion, but nonetheless set in this strategic place, on this main street, in this community. It may continue to be a place where there is an open door. And the good news of Jesus Christ, in word and in deed, can be made known. That's our plea, that's our desire, that's our intent. And we say like the psalmist, here am I for such a day as this. But we thank you, O God, our Father, that you also speak to us as that fellow said to the Polish lad on Tuesday night, not only to hear, but to see. And you set before us this morning in a very visual way, right in the middle of this sanctuary, tangible tokens of Lord Jesus, who you are and the business that you were about of the body broken and the blood shed. What stands at the heart of the Christian faith, not our attempts to get to you, but how you and Christ have come to us. And of how that great gulf of our sin has been dealt with, as with those outstretched arms on the cross, Lord Jesus, you took upon yourself our sins and the judgment of a holy God for our sins. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, our advocate before our Father who is in heaven. And so, Spirit of the living God, as you have spoken to us and ministered to us through your word, so continue to minister to us now. Take this bread and wine and speak to us of the height and depth the mercy and love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And as we come, as we hear that invitation to come, we would come afresh to you, Lord Jesus. Wounded, broken, frail, tired, wearied, unsure, doubting. And may we find that you are indeed the one whose words are holy and And all of that we ask for the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.